Hey, everybody. Welcome back to our brand new, not really new anymore, mini series all about the ready and the future of HR. It's me, Rodney, and Sam. Hi, Sam. Hi, Rodney. Today, we are also joined again by the one and only Meg Saxby. Meg, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. (laughs) This week on episode four, I can't believe we're on four already. We are continuing our conversation about the capabilities that HR folks will need in order to succeed in this bright, shiny future that we are all marching toward. This is part two of a conversation we started last week. So if you haven't had a chance to hear that episode, go check it out first and then come back here. But before we dive in, you know we have to check in. So Meg, you crushed it last time. Two for two. Want to get another fun (laughs) check-in question ready for us? I do. So I would like to know, what is a language that you would like to speak or speak better than you currently do and why? So easy. I spoke beautiful, fluent Spanish when I was in college. I studied in Madrid and I lived with a Spanish family and I went to a Spanish university and I took really difficult classes like economics in Spanish and I dreamt in Spanish and I had a boyfriend in Spanish and everything (laughs) was Spanish. And now I speak Spanish like a fucking five-year-old and it makes me real sad to have lost it. So I would get it back. If I could speak Spanish like 20-year-old Rodney, I would be thrilled. Nice. Okay, so I took French in high school. So four years of not trying very hard in my high school French classes left me (laughs) with very, very... Rudimentary is not even the right word. Whatever before rudimentary is French. And I feel like I would love to actually move beyond, you know, asking if I can sharpen my pencil or where is the toilet? Or sometimes when I would get confused, ask if I can sharpen the toilet, which is not super helpful. So we'll go, we'll go with French. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So nice good. one. <laughs> I'm also gonna choose French because I took many years of it in school and I was just getting to a point of fluency and then I became too cool, unfortunately. Oh. Uh, too cool for French. <laughs> yeah. And well, you know, I was like class. 15. So I quit French and violin and I'm like, damn, <laughs> like I could really, I could really do with that. So I would like to get my French back to fluent level. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> cool. That's I it. Y'all. It. In We're keeping in. with last week's theme of Meg being a rebel, part of that rebellion I know. was, I'm not, <laughs> yeah. I'm not no taking French, French mom. No. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom was like, I'm going to okay. drive fast cars and smoke <laughs> cigarettes and not speak <laughs> French. <laughs> Don't She's like, okay. (laughs) I love it. Well, we could talk about this forever, but we have capabilities to discuss, y'all. So we have to get serious about this. We Um, do. do. Last week, we covered the first three capability areas that y'all need in order to move sort of from level one or level two to level three, which is the Hollywood model. We covered adaptation and experimentation very briefly. We talked about contracting and communication. We talked about user experience and decentralization. I realize that sounds like six things, but they're little coupleted capabilities. And today we are going to talk about the other three. So Meg, you want to give us a little overview of the three other skills that will unlock level three and beyond all the way through the profit center in our HR maturity model? Yeah. So the three capabilities that we're going to be focusing on today are facilitation and future of work coaching, solution design and market management, 
and data literacy and automation. And these three capabilities, it's really important to work these as you're trying to move from levels three to four to five, because at these levels, the HR department really does a lot of work of transforming itself and reimagining persistent work. So it's shedding a lot of organizational debt and it's varsity kind of 2.0 work. So if you try to do this without intentionally strengthening these capabilities, it's a little bit like trying to run a marathon without conditioning. You might be particularly fit and able to pull it off, but rarely would you have a whole team or a whole department that is able to do that without a little bit of cross training. So where should we start? I'm in charge here today. Uh, the boss. <laughs> <laughs> Facilitation and future of work coaching. Uh, let's start there. And I'm curious too, like why these two are paired together. I have my thoughts, but I'm curious, Meg, if you can maybe start there. Yeah. So they're paired together because they are sort of the tactics that we use as individuals, but then also as teammates as a group and also as coaches of other groups undergoing transformation to both do the work that we need to do internally and together and design and facilitate our ability to do that together explicitly in a collaborative and creative way. So I think about coaching as the work that happens perhaps in dyads or triads or even individually. And then facilitation is how a whole group is coached towards a new end. So that's why I would put those two together. Yeah. I don't think you can really do any kind of coaching of practices without facilitation. And also, I think that a lot of people's ideas about facilitation feel quite antiquated, where it's more about like being the person with the marker at the flip chart than creating intentional containers for participation. And that is such a huge part of mission-based teaming. So that's how I see that layer in there. That's so well said, Rodney, in the sense that I don't think I've ever really said this before, but so much, maybe even more than half of facilitation happens before you even get into the room in in the creation of the space, the moment that we're going to try to have together. It's not just kind of showing up and playing with whatever emerges, although that is a useful facilitation skill to have. It's the actual thoughtful design of the space that we're all going to step into together. And let us not forget the 5% of facilitation, at least in person, where we are always required to move the furniture. You have to. It's not a facilitation if you haven't moved. Even if the furniture is in a perfectly okay spot, you got to move it around a little bit. Otherwise, you're not. Exactly. (laughs) I got to have the space just so. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I joke, but it's kind of true. I cannot remember a time that I have facilitated an in-person group that I did not arrive early and move a couch by myself. It almost (laughs) always happens. Totally. So if we think about practically what that looks like. A lot of the time, what we'll see in coaching is people learning to move towards like strengths-based coaching models, learning to help themselves and each other develop the kind of emotional literacy that's required to thrive in a much more changeable environment. And then on a facilitation side, you'd see a lot of UX, human-centered design, liberating structures, these much more participatory and collaborative and really honestly less controlled and less compliance oriented formats for how you can gather people together and facilitate them towards a creative outcome. That's really critical for mission-based teaming. And it's also just critical for any team that's trying to refine how it works and optimize it. Yeah. Again, this miniseries should be called The Pill and the Hot Dog. But I'm going back to that analogy that we keep using, which is like when we talk about installing certain practices into mission-based teams around meetings or making decisions or making agreements or using tools, we do that through facilitation and future of work coaching. That's how we are teaching the HR business coaches and the participants in the mission-based team new ways of working. And in level four and beyond, 
we start doing that work with the platform team and it becomes very central to having a talent marketplace is having those new ways of working and coaching that are no longer ours to carry, but instead are carried by people within the HR function. And the thing is, this is an area where whether you're in HR or not, the future of work coaching thing shows up. So like Sam does, you know, transformation classic, as I call it, in most projects, which is not necessarily for specifically an HR audience or partner. So Sam, like when you think about future of work coaching and how that shows up in your practice, what comes to mind? Like what's the highlight reel look like? Yeah, I think it's often things that are seemingly quite simple. For example, I'm consistently surprised, although I shouldn't be, of the power of a default operating rhythm for a team. Most teams really don't have any sort of operating rhythm beyond just like maybe a weekly staff meeting where we all gather around and tell the leader what they want to know about what is happening. And that is such a barren version of an operating rhythm. So a lot of our initial work with the team will be like, all right, well, what conversations do we need to be having on what cadences to make sure we're kind of touching all the bases. So probably something like a weekly action meeting, something like a monthly to six-week-ish retrospective where we're making sure we pause and learn about how things are going. And then we're on a quarterly-ish strategy meeting where we have a chance to actually look at our strategy and make some trade-offs and make some decisions about what we want the next quarter of work to look like. So it's things like that that have a huge impact on a team when really it's just a couple of small moves. Yeah. And what we want to see happening at these levels is that an HR team is so strong in their ability to iterate their op rhythm, for example, and coach themselves through making it stronger, that they're actually able to model that for the rest of the organization. Because in levels three to five, that's really where we start to see this change really ripple out. So mission-based teams are this learning laboratory for people across different functions to learn these new ways of working. And then HR really becomes the sort of the beacon that's exuding all this stuff elsewhere into the organization. So they have to be good at it. Yeah, that's a pattern I have seen over and over and over in all of our transformation work where you spin up some mission-based teams that have the permission and the expectation to use some different ways of working, some better ways of working that we have have taught them. And then the mission-based team winds down or somebody rolls off of it because the role is no longer needed. And suddenly they become this evangelist of a better way of working and they start basically speaking up around like, well, how come the rest of my work can't be like the experience that I just had on this mission-based team? Why don't we have an algorithm in my normal day-to-day work? Hey, let's figure out some better ways to do this. And you get this really positive contagion of new expectations for what it means to work in a better way. The other thing that we see a lot with mission-based teams, and it's intentional in this model, is that as you move from level three to level four, what actually happens is mission-based teams start to compete with the persistent teams for time and space and resources. And so it actually, the mission-based team puts pressure on the rest of the organization and pushes it to evolve both in their practices and literally pushing the rest of the organization to give capacity to high-value, high-ROI ideas. Awesome. I mean, I feel like you nerds could talk just about future of work coaching and facilitation for this entire episode, but we have other things we have to do here. So I'm going to keep us moving along to capability numero dos. See? Spanish. Sam has ended. I thought Mm -hmm. I was in charge, but alas, (laughs) alas, I I am not. stole it away, (laughs) and I will be conducting the rest of this podcast in Spanish now. No, the next capability we're going to discuss is solution design and market management. So Meg... Tell us a little bit about this couplet. And I loved Sam's question before of like, why is this one thing and what the fuck does it mean? 
<laughs> yeah, we'll start with what does it mean? So Great. in many ways, this capability is sort of the 2.0 of user experience and decentralization. So if you get really strong at user experience and decentralization, you're getting really strong into what your end users needs and pain points and actual jobs to be done are. And then it moves to this capability, which is really how are you going to design something that applies and will get to those needs and is configurable that it can be used in other contexts. So it's designing something that is strong enough that it will be directly applicable to a particular set of needs, but can also be configured to another set of needs. And then with an added layer of product muscle. And product muscle is really how are you going to make your stuff so strong and so frictionless that a person external to your business might use it. And what this does is it sets you up for level six of our maturity model, which is where HR actually begins to sell these solutions or make these solutions available to an external marketplace. We put solution design and market management in one category because the stronger you get with solution design through MBTs or other means, we start to see HR having to manage a marketplace of MBT teams and potential MBTs. So that puts extra load on those prioritization and value definition skills. And that's where the MBTs are putting pressure on the rest of the organization to evolve. And HR has to really facilitate the creation and management of a market of internal ideas, which will later be a market that also deals with external clients. You mentioned that this is basically the 2.0 version of decentralization and UX. And I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit more, I guess. So like, what does it look like to go from a UX focus to solution design? Yeah. So a UX focus is where you would start. The solution design is really where it turns into a thing. And so you would start with, we're designing a prototype, something that we can use internally. And then it sort of up levels to, all right, how do we get that strong enough that it could be used by an external group or by someone who has really no, no knowledge of this particular problem? Mm, so like almost if UX is more experimental and innovation mm-hmm. focused, mm-hmm. solution design is kind of like an internal go-to-market sort of yeah. situation, a product that you're going to maintain. Totally. You could see it that way. Yeah. I think the other way I think about it is like you might do UX process to develop sort of small bespoke things for different parts of the company. But then when you're like, okay, really, this is how we're going to do something like performance management or something that really needs to happen overarchingly, you might want to take it into the solution design space because you really want it to be more than just a prototype. You want it to be like a probably third or fourth iteration. Gotcha. So does UX and decentralization kind of get you through level three and solution design and market management don't come in until later? Or or how how do you think of that? I would say UX and decentralization gets you up into level three where you're kind of running your MBTs. And then ideally what's happening is you're learning so much that you're needing to kind of integrate those elsewhere into the organization and your ability to design responses get stronger and stronger. And that's where you move towards marketization of your ideas. Okay. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) I've been talking to, I'm like sitting here thinking, because I've been talking to Mm. some folks. I talked Mm -hmm. to someone this morning. I just think that this is such a big shift for HR functions. Like the typical pattern in the platform, right? So these are the persistent teams that exist forever, like payroll, like employee relations, where like they're not going away, but there is work to evolve, is just not to necessarily include like 
multiple perspectives and do a lot of process iteration as a big part of the job. Like, it's almost interesting to think about with gnarlier solutions that are required, like installing a new HRIS or creating a new ATS or creating new performance management, Meg, to your point, how much that somatically feels like a one-and-done thing in HR. And it's really not. And I think the point that you're making here, Meg, is this is part of the job. Like part of managing the market and part of serving internal clients is not to be like, whoo, well, that took two years and now we're not going to look at it again for two decades. It's like (laughs) the market's moving fast. The technology is moving fast. What is the experimentation that you're doing even as the third or fourth generation thing, to your point, is being used effectively? And it's just like, that's a really big shift. And, And I'm mostly saying that out loud because of how much time and attention it takes to do this right. It's like not, it's not just a little like side of desk thing. It takes real attention to be designing solutions that feel modern and testing them and getting them to a point where they are really scalable. So this is no small feat, but it is so necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like fixing bugs and improving things along the way, as you were talking there, it just made me think about how we talk about transformation with organizations in that there's never a state where you are just done and then wipe your hands and walk away. And like, we did the thing. (laughs) We are transformed. Yeah, that's not that's not a thing. What we're always trying to do with our clients is help build the capacity so that they can change themselves indefinitely into the future. Because the world is always changing and something that you have created for a moment in time right now is not necessarily going to be fit for purpose 10 years from now or five years from now or six months from now. If It's going to require probably not a ton of constant attention, but you can't just put it in a drawer and expect it to work forever. It's interesting because what you mentioned about the continuous improvement of this and the capacity required for that, that's one of the reasons that this capability is much more critical going from levels three to level five. Because honestly, if you try to do that kind of continuous improvement from a level one place in terms of your operating model and your capabilities, your people probably won't have the capacity for it in terms of time and energy and bandwidth because they're too busy doing persistent work in the ways that they always have. So it really is something that only opens up, I would say, and becomes possible as we have the ability to simplify process and shed org debt and start to automate. So we've talked about two of the three capabilities. So let's jump into that last one, which is data literacy and automation. Meg, I am very, very curious about this one. Please give us the high level and then we'll dive into it. Uh, so this is like what everyone is talking about. I was just telling Sam that every dinner party I end up at, everyone is talking about chat GPT and AI. So right. obviously this question of automation and data literacy, which is what is underneath the ability to automate and also one of the things that automation gives you. So this really comes down to two separate sets of skills. The first is the ability to actually design things that will pick up data and that will give you metrics that you can evaluate them with. So it's sort of designing a process and thinking about what would success look like, what would we be looking for as indicators of pain points. And then it's the actual process of taking that data from the ecosystem of tools and processes you have around you and interpreting it. And as you get stronger and stronger at it, the data ecosystem actually starts to help you with that interpretation and that it predicts things and it points to bottlenecks. If you look underneath this, this requires a lot of process literacy and a different approach to how you make decisions and how you think about signal. 
So it's exciting stuff. And again, it's pretty varsity. It's sort of 2.0. Absolutely. Everyone is thinking about this and a level one team and a level two team would also probably be wanting to work this capability, but it really becomes more and more possible once you have the mission-based teams capability too. That's exciting. You know, you talk to a lot of people. (laughs) What do you think? What do you think? Or what do you see as some of the big potential wins of automation within HR at this moment, which is June 2023? Mm, So many things. So many things. Okay, I don't even really know where to start. There's so much administrivia in HR that is just like sand in the gears that I think AI potentially takes care of. And that's everything from like creation of templates to use for performance plans or for giving feedback or for creating training modules or for doing internal communications or, you know, choose your adventure there where it's like those things often just to get to a first draft are hours and hours and revs and revs of socialization. And I think that a lot of that stuff can potentially be automated. I think there's a huge amount of upside in terms of workflow automation. So you look at traditional HRIS systems and like LMSs and ATSs and like the amount of manual reporting, manual data entry, like daisy chaining together of those systems because they don't talk to each other. I think all of that shifts fairly quickly. I think there is a tremendous upside, which actually Jack and I have been talking about recently, just in terms of knowledge management. So in complex systems, it's just incredibly hard. I might say it's impossible to successfully have like the golden source of information because it's just like you can't keep up with the cataloging of everything that everyone is making and doing and knowing all the time. And I think that with a large language model, the idea that basically like the brain of the organization can be known and housed by AI and then pulled based on whatever question the user actually has is like pretty revolutionary. Like imagine if like every piece of governance and role and OS guide and, and, and from all of history at the ready were available in that way where you could just be like, what role was Sam holding in 2016? Or like, what's our travel policy? Or like, when are reviews due? Like, that is where we're headed. And when you think about the fact that like, we are going to be able to type that into something and get a correct answer versus how that generally goes now in systems, First of all, it's just going to be better. And second of all, HR fields a ton of that shit, and they should be able to just not. I'm so excited for that future. I spend a lot of time searching our Slack, trying to figure stuff out, or just searching our Google Drive and getting mad at people like me who don't file things very well or name them very well. I'm the problem. So this this whole (laughs) capability is about working around people like me who aren't doing their part to keep healthy knowledge management systems going. The other piece that I'm really excited about, and it is not perfect technology by any means yet, nor will it ever be, but I'm really excited about the ways that it might help us interrupt bias and the different kind of prejudices that we hold. Because the way that I think about it is we currently use our own algorithms and our own brains to filter stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so like we'll see the patterns that we know or the patterns that particularly jump out to us. But I am really curious, like as we have a better and a richer data ecosystem, what will we see, you know, about ourselves and how will that help us understand how power and privilege are working in organizations and things like that? So I'm just very excited about the the different level of richness that we might get to that way. 
totally. Oh, wait, I have one more. This is actually like the thing that's the most related <laughs> to our HR maturity model, and I, and yet I didn't talk about it. Having spelunked many times for an actually really good resource management tool that isn't like timesheets, that is talent marketplace management, et cetera, it doesn't exist. AI is going to fix that. And there is a world that is not far from here where AI will be able to unearth the missions that are floating around based on diagnosing what's happening in the system, whether that's through like listening in certain channels or understanding and having been fed fractal strategy from all around the organization, whatever, you get it. But I think the really interesting part is like when it is able to start predicting, like we will need 50% of one of the employment attorney's time if we are going to go after this in September and we know where that capacity is and how it's deployed right now and how we could get that capacity, that is so manual in most places right now. And I actually don't think it's going to take that much for that to change. And the dynamism of talent and the possibilities of a real fluid marketplace when that technology is available is going to be like night and day from where we are now. That's cool as hell. Were you going to say something else, Sam, or was that it? I thought I had another one for this topic, but I don't think I actually do. I was going to say something about like we get to the point where we can like simulate what will happen in a system and then you can experiment faster, but I don't know if that's actually a thing. I think I might just be watching too much sci-fi. I don't know either. It's hard to tell sometimes. (laughs) That's true. We do live on this like, in this, I mean, we were talking about this before we started the recording, just the rate of change around all of this should make us somewhat hesitant to make predictions because mm. nope, I'm things are changing very fast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, as as we all as we all are. But that's why that's why we're here. As, <laughs> as long as you can hold those hot takes very lightly, then hot take away. But um, I don't know. It's an exciting time, I think, to be thinking mm. about what this whole genre of technology might. Open up. open up. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Totally. Totally. And I love the idea that, for example, like my predictions around this in many ways are skeuomorphic. It's like taking the mm. thing that I am frustrated with and see very clearly right now and understanding the way in which like that thing will be better and different. And what is more interesting yeah. and also more likely is that that thing won't exist at all and be completely replaced <laughs> by something else, which is like also fun to think about and imagine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Totally. Well, I mean, one thing that HR teams also, in terms of the fact that we can't predict anything, but like the output of planning is useless, but the the efforts of thinking through scenarios is helpful, is it's really good to start thinking about the backend process literacy that we need to actually get to automation. So to make a decision, to learn to talk as a team about what do we need this process to do? What could we pick up from it? So I think it's that kind of learning and that's the kind of thinking that we need to practice. And then as the tech evolves, we're more and more able to use it. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap it up. That was a lot of information. So, uh, you know, class dismissed. Meg... Thank you for coming back. I'm glad we didn't, you know, scare you off with our nonsense in part one. It was so fun having you (laughs) for part two. And maybe there will be a part three. You never know. Well, thanks for having me. It's always fun to nerd out about these things with y'all. So thank you. Sam, what should we do next week? Oh, so I'm back in charge again. Okay. (laughs) Next week, we'll, we'll be talking about giving some classic HR roles a makeover and what the future of the HRVP looks like. 
If you want a preview, check out the goods on theready.com forward slash F-O-H-R and hook us up with your CHRO or HRBP, okay? Thanks as always to Taylor Marvin for making us sound awesome. This mini series is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us by emailing FOHR at theready.com. As for you HR leaders listening right now, let's change ourselves first.